Thanks so much for joining us today on Leesburg Community Church's podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, including directions and service times, please visit leesburgcc.org. On our website, you can also find notes and daily devotionals based on this teaching. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you like today's message. Good morning. My name is Noel Brown. I've been a member here at the Leesburg Community Church for approximately eight years and currently serve since January of this year on the Board of Directors. And I've never done this before. I've preached, but never to an empty auditorium. I was hoping maybe we could get some pictures pasted to the back of the pews, maybe some bobbleheads, you know, nodding, saying amen. Maybe some Nationals bobbleheads. It is baseball season, although that's not happening. But it is uh, to you out through the ether that I am privileged to bring the Word of God today. And so I am thankful, very thankful for that opportunity. I am conscious of my clay feet as I respond to the high calling of God to bring the gospel of Christ. And so, with that as a preamble, will you pray with me? Father, we thank you that we have opportunity and means to hear your word freely. We know there are many in the world who do not. And we pray that you will bring it to them in whatever means pleases you, that the name of Jesus will be exalted throughout the world, this day, and every day. Lord, be with us here as I talk and open the word. Help each who are listening and watching. Be praying for me as I do this, Lord, that you would be glorified. And we come to you in that name that is above all names, the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Today is the uh, Sunday before Easter, celebrated in much of the Christian church around the world as Palm Sunday. The term reflects the most common but not universal understanding that the Passion Week, culminating in the crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, began with his triumphal entry into Jerusalem during which many of the onlooking crowd took branches from trees along the way and laid them out before Jesus as he made his way from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem, specifically to the temple. So we are going to skip ahead in our series of messages on the Gospel of Mark because we haven't really got up to chapter 11 11 yet. We'll come back to that. And we're going to chapter 11, the first 11 verses. The parallel passages to the portion of the gospel we'll be talking about today are found in Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 to 9, Luke chapter 19, verses 29 to 38, and John 12, verses 12 to 15. It's an event that's recorded in all four of the gospels. The passage reads as follows. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, 
at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, What are you doing? Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street. And they untied it, and some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. I've structured the message for this morning uh, in three general sections beginning with some comments on the steps best followed in getting an appropriate interpretation of this, or for that matter, any passage of Scripture, which can be applied to our lives now, some 20 centuries after the events. Then we will try to get a reasonably clear understanding of how those to whom the words in the text were spoken and then written understood their meaning and importance. And finally, what application do they have for us right now in the midst of probably the most stressful, overpowering crisis we, our nation, and even the world has faced in our lifetimes? First, our approach to the text. It really is a pretty simple passage, don't you think? Jesus is going to Jerusalem sends a couple of guys off to get a donkey, rides it from the Mount of Olives, which is where Bethany is near, down to Jerusalem to the celebration and praise of the crowd. And after taking a look into the temple, heads back to Bethany where he is staying. We might conclude that nothing particularly earth-shattering occurred and might even wonder, why is the passage included in the Bible? What's the big deal? In fact, those might be the words that those people who owned the donkey said to the two disciples. What's the deal taking that donkey? But we'll come back to that. But let's think about how the Bible, particularly the Gospels, in this case, came about. It is generally understood that the written records of the actions and words of Jesus during his lifetime on earth began as oral traditions. It is not likely that a scribe followed him around writing everything down and in fact, John wrote in his gospel in chapter 20, now Jesus did many other things in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And John concluded his gospel in the next chapter, verses 24 to 25, with this. This, meaning himself, is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things, 
and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are many, also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So clearly, the early writers of Scripture and those conveying the oral tradition had to make a selection, a selection process, to choose that the events, the teachings, and the reactions to those events and teachings in Jesus' life that would remain as the Word of God for God's people. Under the holy guidance of the Holy Spirit, they choose those events, and all succeeding ages would have them and nothing else of authority from God. And so you can bet that they were careful, that they prayed hard. What would we put down? What would remain for the church to follow? And we should remember that during that selection process, tremendous persecution was being directed in the early young church to the church. Those who had been called to faith and those who were walking in the way, as it was known. They were despised, tortured, slain by wild animals as entertainment for the crowds. And the word, the scriptures, was their teacher and foundation for their faith and sacrifice. Care had been taken to select what was going to be included in the word of God by the people of God. We need to be very careful how we treat and consider this in any passage of scripture, of course. Regarding today's text, indeed, it seems fairly plain without much importance. But then why would that have been included, included in the Bible? We need the help of the Spirit and patience to reveal its message to us today. But we must not accomplish that by spiritualizing the text or putting into it that which is not really there. Second, the initial steps in achieving that understanding that we are striving for have to do with using available resources to get as close as possible to what the passage meant to the original hearers and subsequent readers. Where does this passage fit in the overall revelation of God's working in the world to bring about his promises to mankind? That study area is commonly known as biblical theology. But the easiest way to remember is just where does this passage fit? in the long revelation that God has made of himself to us and to the way to be joined to him forever and ever. Finally, what is the meaning or how does the passage speak to your heart and my heart today? Whether we have come to faith in Jesus Christ as our savior from sin and its consequences, or if that is not our experience yet, what does it say to you? Well, let's go back through the passage with some care, just looking it over as we pass and go through and draw attention to certain aspects of it. First of all, note the specifics of the text. 
It, it begins in uh, near Jerusalem, near Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is about two miles east of Jerusalem. It's across a valley and it rises up to an altitude of about 300 feet higher than the city. So from the Mount of Olives, there is a wonderful view of Jerusalem. It certainly was wonderful then. I haven't been there in this at all in my life, but I expect it's probably still wonderful. So the location, Bethany, the Mount of Olives. And secondly, we were going to look at the directions to the two disciples, very specific directions, the location of the donkey, the answers to the objections raised and the activity of the crowd. And finally, the powerful presence of the promises of God to his people. Back to the setting. Initially, is near two villages close to Jerusalem, as I mentioned, Bethany being the one of, of importance for us right now, which means house of sorrow. Beth Page, by the way, is the other one, which means the house of unripe figs. Surprisingly, that surprised me. I didn't know that when I began the study. These two villages are near Mount, the Mount of Olives, which is about, as I said, two miles east of Jerusalem. You can look from the mount across the small valley and see the city. One of the resources that I mentioned before, we can consult to help us best be sure of what the importance is of this is other passages in scripture, which help us understand the importance of a particular place in Jewish culture at the time or where specific events occurred in Jesus' ministry, which have a bearing on these events. In the 11th chapter of the book of the prophet Ezekiel, there are events described which happened around 586 BC, 620 some years before this event. I'm going to read that passage to you. And the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, your brothers, even your brothers, your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel, all of them, all those of whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, go far from the Lord to us. This land is given for a possession. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, though I removed them far off among the nations and though I scattered them among the countries, yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a while in the countries where they have gone. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered and I will give you the land of Israel. And when they came there, they will remove from it all its detestable things and its abominations. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh so that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I shall be, will be their God. But as for those whose heart goes after their detestable things and their abominations, I will bring their deeds upon their own heads, declares the Lord God. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is east of the city. The glory of God left Jerusalem and the temple and went to the Mount of Olives 
The Mount of Olives has a key place in the history of the church. That's the end of that passage. So in that prophetic passage, the great dispersion of Israel, the glory of the Lord went up from the city and stood on the mountain, the glory, Mount of Olives. God withdrew his presence from the people who had ignored him and were now paying the price for their disobedience. Can you imagine the depth of woe a true believer in Israel felt when the, the prophet spoke that the glory of God had removed been removed from the people, from the Jerusalem, from the temple? Woe unto us. Woe unto us. The glory is gone. I was helped much in, in understanding this by reading a commentary on the book of Mark by R.C. Sproul, by the way, who is a great pastor and preacher, passed away recently, a ministry that has been much blessed in the church. I recommend his works to you. The glory of God, God had already touched down, or at, touched down at or near the mount in Jesus' travels and works. Bethany is where Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha, lived. Yes, the Lazarus whom he had raised from the dead. A precursor to the true return of the glory of God, perhaps. In 586 B.C., the glory of God left the temple. But when Jesus came, the glory of God came back. What a moment. What a moment. After 600 years, the glory of God is back. And that's the big idea of the passage. Jesus, the Messiah, the glorious one of God, has come. Jesus is finally declaring by deeds, specifically, and by allowing the words of others, the knowledge to come forth to Israel that the glory of God is back and the promises of God will be fulfilled. Note two, the means of Jesus' entry into the city on a donkey, the cult of an ass. Another passage in the Old Testament is a resource we would consult. The prophet Zechariah chapter nine. Verses 9 to 13. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea. From the, and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my servant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow, and I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. 
the glory has come. And the king has come, as promised, to wield the sword and at the same time bring peace. It is difficult for us to really grasp the importance of these prophetic words in the minds and the culture of Judaism at the time of Christ. They were virtually enslaved by Rome. A foreign language dominated their land, Greek in particular. The tax burden was huge and hated. Their own rulers bowed down to the Roman ruler. They awaited the promised return of the son of David, their promised king. He might come on a donkey, but he would wield a warrior's sword. They just didn't understand the nature of the sword. We'll come back to that. Deeply rooted in the Jewish consciousness of the Old Testament was the hope of the king who would enter Jerusalem as their coming Messiah while riding on a donkey. One never ridden before, by the way, and the parallel passages reveal to us this was a donkey that had never been ridden before. So the reaction of the crowd was quick, powerful, emotional, and anticipative of glory. Let's take, stop for a second and, and, and think who that crowd is. And John reveals to us in this gospel uh, in the parallel passage, that many in the crowd were people from Bethany who had observed Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. These weren't just kind of people who saw the 5,000 get fed and were temporarily joyous. These were people who had seen Jesus do a miracle like that. So there was some faith there. There was some anticipation mixed with their understanding at that time of what the Messiah was going to do in saving them. But it was real joy, real anticipation. And so they let it all hang out. Down go the cloaks. Down go the branches. Here comes the Messiah. And they quote from the Old Testament, a third passage, passage quoted by the crowd. Psalm 118 that Edward Forrest, 19 to 26. Open to me the gates of the righteous that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord this is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The crowd praised the coming king, but rather neither they nor his disciples really yet fully understood what being their Messiah would require. They had only a slight inkling of what it was going to be. But Jesus knew. He knew that the path from the Mount of Olives to the temple was not the extent of the full path. The path continued to the cross. Isaiah 50, chapter 5, 50 verses 5 to 8. The Lord has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. 
Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. There are many other passages we could refer to in the Old Testament. In Genesis, Kings, Jeremiah, Isaiah, more, many more. But the point is made that the scriptures themselves offer to us our first choice as a means of interpretation. Always go to the scripture first. If you come to a passage you don't understand, or if you happen in your first reading to think it's trivial, knowing, thinking back of how it was created and what it cost, seek other scriptures to understand. And then seek the counsel of wise people who know, who studied. What was not here, some, some points to make now and, and by way of application to ourselves, because they believed the Messiah was coming to restore the kingdom of David. Many of that crowd, if not most, would disappear at the cross. They thought they believed. They were somewhat naive. They were enthusiastic. But they didn't really understand. Nor did they have the Holy Spirit then. And so there's another element that we need to be understanding unless we criticize and characterize as faithless in an errant way people who believed to the degree that they could, but they did not understand. Peter didn't understand yet. You know what yet comes in his life. Firstly, by way of application, what was not clear to the crowd or the disciples at the time was that Jesus is indeed the promised king who does away with the separation of God's people from him and each other by being the sacrifice our sin required. Your sin and my sin. There is no other way. As I said before, Jesus knew the path he was on from the mount did not end at the temple, but at the cross. For you, for me, to reclaim, restore, and answer the pleadings, Hosanna, save us now. Save us now. But the polluting of his temple, the body of Christ, the church, will not be ignored. The last verse in the passage, as Jesus going into the temple, it says, looking around at everything, and then left. The next passage that we will talk about sometime soon, verse 12 and on, and later on, will help us understand what might have been going through the mind of our Savior as he looked around in that temple, as he saw what it had become. He looked around at everything, and it was already late that he went to Bethany with the twelve. We'll consider that in more detail at another time. We are going through a major transition in our church. Searching for a pastor. Confirming our commitments to our own articles of faith. And our commitment to living the gospel. In a trialsome time. Amid a national crisis. How will we fare? As a church. Will we merit a letter like one of those seven in the beginning of the book of Revelation? You've lost your first love. Or will we be able to say, through the grace of God, and the powerful work of his spirit among us, 
We are firm and merciful. And we have given ourselves for the gospel. Are we willing to be like the owners of the cult? You know, they were standing there looking around, and these two guys come up. Nobody knew them, right? They start to untie the colt. Hey, what's going on? What are you doing? Think about walking up on the street down in Leesburg and starting to do a jimmy and take somebody's car. And he, that person, his friend, is standing there. You think you're going to get a similar reaction? Hey, what's going on? Why are you doing that? And they say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back. And they say, okay. Okay. Jesus knew what they would say, and he knew what their reaction would be when they were told the Lord would need it. All of these activities are part of God's purposeful, clear, eternal plan to bring about the restoration of sin, sinners to himself, to the kind of fellowship that the God has experienced, Godhead has experienced from eternity. People of faith in Christ are drawn into that same fellowship by the work of Christ. And much of the reaction is a complete change of mind from what you'd expect of any of us. Are we willing to be like the owners of the cult, I asked? The Lord needs it and we'll send it back immediately. Okay, is our giving like that? Do we hold what we have been given to God with that same kind of open hand? Is your giving like that now in this tough time? Yep, the market's crashed. Your IRA is worth about half or less of what it was, etc., etc. But our church is committed to enhance our ministries to the needy, to those who don't have food, to those who don't have shelter or can't pay their rent. Giving is down. It needs to be up. It needs to be way up. Pray about that. And then when the Lord says he needs it, okay, okay, whatever you need. Do we really believe relying on the helper, the spirit, that all that is happening around us and to us is part of the perfect plan of the perfect planner? Even the coronavirus, Lord? Even this sickness that's killing hundreds, thousands perhaps every day, that too, you know, that's part of the plan of the omniscient, perfect God. And he is committed to use us in the work of helping people understand his merciful goodness to them and to us. So let's not fret. Stop looking inward. Oh, always me. The glory's gone. The glory's not gone. The glory's back. Look outward. How can I help, Lord? What can I do? Help me lock to myself. And when I have a doubt, when Satan puts it in my mind, no, that can't happen to you, Jesus. Go ahead and tell me, get behind me, Satan. And then turn my mind outward from myself to serving others, to giving until you come. Anxiety, worry, fear, all those things are focused inward. And they cripple our ministries and our witness at a time that God has given us 
as the most blessed opportunity for the church in this crisis. May we be good enough by his grace to capitalize on it. Beware, next to lastly, of selective understanding of the word. This early, those, those Jews who were looking at Jesus as the son of David, the restoral king to restore the kingdom, were enthusiastic, but naive. They did some selective use of the scriptures. Let me believe that, but let me not ever return to that one. I, now, on a cult, and might have to die. My Messiah can't die. On a cross? No. Not at the hands of Rome. The whole counsel of God is what we understand and preach. And so your life in the word needs to be looking at the whole counsel of God, the full gospel of Christ, not some partial gospel that is in the rage today. The whole gospel as the center of your life. With humility, I hope, but absolute honesty in love, I'll tell you that making equal all the disequal inequalities in the world is not the gospel. Making America great again is not the gospel. The gospel is the coming of Christ to save sinners. The church needs to bind itself to the gospel and not allow it to be divided and divisive by clinging unto political beliefs or economic and social beliefs that are nowhere taught in the scripture. Yes, we look at the needy and we give until it hurts and then some more. But the poor will always be with us. We cannot change that. Yes, we have leaders who have particular persuasions and we honor their leadership and pray for them, but we don't idolize them. The only one we idolize is Jesus, our Savior. And so let us pour ourselves into the whole gospel of Christ and make it be the fundamental, all-encompassing basis of our lives together. Because the glory of God has come. He's with us right now, with you in your home, where you are gathered together to worship him. Lift up your hearts, your eyes, and your hands to heaven and say, thank you, Lord. The glory has come. Jesus has declared. Pray with me again, if you will. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the purposeful work of your son. The sinless, purposeful endeavor that came to fruition on the cross. We thank you for this passage, Lord. It opened our minds up to how purposeful you are, how you set your face as a flint, and how you will not allow your church to be polluted. And so, God, help us grow in grace. Help us be people who confess readily our sins, acknowledge our failures, pray for your strength and goodness. Open our hearts to your leading and your word. 
Make us diligent, trusting, and faithful every day. In the name of Jesus, that name that is above all names. In his name we pray. Amen.